Welcome to 1530. This is episode 13. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about um, the tour and who won Indian Wells. Kind of recap that as well as Miami. We had two pretty amazing Masters 1000s tournaments to close out, I guess, the hardcore season. And then we're moving into clay. So we'll talk about how the tour is doing. We're also going to be talking about um, an interesting topic today about head-to-head -head effects and what effects that has on win probabilities. Um, but my name is Ben. I'm Matt, and we're just two tennis fans of opposite sides of the of America, bringing stats to the tennis world. All right, so let's kick it off with the stat of the day. So stat of the day is three points on serve. And this is uh, in the Miami final. Roger Federer only dropped three points on serve. He was 32 for 35. Um, this is his best ever mark in a final. I'm going to actually tie his career best for serve points one. Um, so as you would imagine, 100% of those were uh, first serve points that he won. Um, so three points were he lost on second serve. And obviously we know Isner was hobbled, unfortunately, uh, with his foot injury. But Regardless, this is still an incredible feat. Um, and if it sounds very impressive, uh, it, it definitely should be because this doesn't happen uh, very often. So very good serving day from Fed. Obviously, a little bit of a, a down day for Isner. but It is also Isner. I'll just, we're going to talk about head-to-head matchups. Yeah. This is not the best at returning, so that probably didn't be there. No, but it did But still, it did. dropping and only three points is <laughs> that's hard to do against anybody. It, it is. It's amazing. And like you're saying, head-to-head -head effects, obviously, Isner, uh, even though he usually gets into, into some tie breaks against Fed, uh, he's only lost, I believe, twice to Federer, once in Paris um, on an indoor court, and then the other time was a Davis Cup clay match. All the other times, Federer seems to have his number, and he definitely had his number um, in Miami on that Sunday. But yeah, so we'll just kind of get you guys up to speed on what's going on in the ATP World Tour. So Dominic team, amazing run to the final at Indian Wells. He was definitely not favored against the, uh, I believe, four-time champion Roger Federer. Fed lost again in the three-set final um, in Indian Wells. Second year in the row, he lost to Del Potro, had match points the previous year. So I think bummer for Fed, but obviously a huge breakthrough for Dominic team. That's it. That is his maiden um, Masters 1000s title. So any comments on that, Matt, and on, on team's kind of resurgence? Well, I didn't realize that. Um, I didn't realize that was his first Masters. Yeah. 1,000. No, I mean, I think he's been out of the limelight for a while now, which is probably good for any player to not have the, not have the spotlights on you. So just kind of go to work and do your thing, and it's great to see him with the win, and hopefully he can carry that on and see what happens. Yeah, totally. I think for me, because like you're saying, he's been – a very good player, especially on clay, making the French Open final and uh, beating Rafa in, uh, I believe it was Madrid or, or elsewhere. So, so it is surprising mm -hmm. that he hasn't had the same success. Uh, to me, it shows that he's he can be good on any surface. Um, True. The way he was powering from the baseline, because uh, I think he's disappointed in some of the hardcore events, but there he showed. But no, he has the mental uh, capacity. He was he was passing Federer. He was just coming up with the big shots. And I think yeah. Federer didn't really have answers for him, to be honest, from, from the baseline. So it was it was great for team. I think he'd be, it was one of those matches where he just got really hot throughout the tournament. But 
still very impressive from from team for sure well and it probably helps that he uh what because joke got knocked out before he they met right i don't think yes joke lost to uh to somebody else yeah. he lost to um that's right um cole schreiber philippe cole schreiber that's right that's right so that probably helps a little bit but uh i mean needless to say he still had to win the matches he had to win and yeah had to beat monfils who was playing well and <laughs> Oh, maybe I'm looking at a different round. No, yeah, I think that's no. Right. I think I think he had to beat Monfils, but like Shane, he yeah. still yeah, he still had to come up with the goods. He had a couple tight matches, but he won them. So yeah, yeah it's amazing. That's great. Um, what was I going to say? I guess like you're saying, speaking of players getting hot, right? Like Nick Kyrgios just came off the Alcapulco win, and he lost in the second round. Uh, I was there watching it um, to Philip Kolschreiber, six four six four. So Cole Schreiber got hot, and then he did the same thing to Djokovic. Same scoreline, 6-4, 6-4, which beating anybody of that caliber, Kyrgios or Djokovic, is amazing, but especially Djokovic. It's crazy that he's able to uh, – yeah, he was able to beat him so handily. But, again, it's uh, head-to-head matchups we'll talk about. Again, it's just someone getting streaky. You know, Cole Schreiber was serving really well. He's a shorter guy, but he, he defends the serve actually pretty well, and then he was able to put Novak on his back foot, even though Novak was kind of playing tentative. So, yeah, that's just how it goes in tennis sometimes. Yeah. Well, in that game, that match was uh, rain delayed. I think I watched like the what, one game that was played before mm-hmm. before the rain delayed that put it to the next day. And I don't know. I mean, Joe Clips in normal self, it was a it was a small sample, just like a game and a half. But it looks like it was going to be a normal day for him. And yeah, Cole Shriver came out the next day and just. Put it all to rest. <laughs> yeah. Put it away. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then I did. Uh, yeah, totally. And I did confirm because I was like, ah, did team win a, a clay court uh, Masters 1000? He did not. He lost to Rafa in the Madrid final. And then he beat Rafa a few weeks later in Rome, which I think is where I was, was getting there. So this is his first right. uh, his first Masters 1000 event, which is, which is incredible. He, you know, because some people say, oh, his windows kind of passed, but. Yeah, totally not. He's playing some good tennis on the hardcore, and the, even the U.S. Open, right? This last year against Rafa had some uh, very close a points there tiebreaker in the fifth, couldn't get it done. So I think he he is a force to be reckoned with. He's not just a single surface player. Yeah, but he just reminds me so much of Rafa. In, yeah, I agree. Spin and or game like, style. Yeah, and I go back. I guess this isn't stats based, but it, I I feel like the reason one of the reasons the big four have been so con- so good is their consistency. Mm-hmm. And so team is playing at a high level. If he can do that consistently, then he'll get to the point where he's breaking through, where he's getting to the finals, where he's converting those final matches, consolidating them and, and getting those, those championships. So I think he'll come through if he can maintain consistency. I think that's just the key is exactly steadily, steady <clears throat> increase. Even if the steps are small, if you're if you're steadily getting better, steadily at least staying consistent, then you'll get places in the tennis world. Yep. No, totally. And and that's I think the actually the number one way I think he reminds me of Nadal. Just watching him point in and point out, he just has that focus for every point, and he yeah. he he's mentally tough and he and he fights hard. Rafa, I think, is the ultimate uh, competitor that way. That every point he's in it, and I think that's how team is. Uh, We'll see. I think on the return game, he still has some work to do, but he, I think he has that potential to be a really amazing returner and baseliner, like he showed against uh, against Fed. Yeah, agreed. But yeah, um, but pretty fun there. And then obviously it shows, right? Uh, 
the next in Miami, he lost first round, kind of the, the hangover from that championship. And that was okay. interesting that the new venue in Miami, Federer really struggling at the start of the tournament, but then Novak lost and he got he got his mojo going, started beating people like Shapovalov, who's an amazing next-gen player that I think I, – I was hoping that match would be a little closer, but Federer completely destroyed him. And, yeah, Federer really got better as that tournament went on. So that was pretty yeah, amazing. Agreed. Um, and I guess back to next gen. So there was him and then as well as his other compadre uh, from Canada. The name is slipping right now, but he's the young French Canadian. And they kind of have that rivalry, him and Shapovalov. So two guys in the semifinals, neither of them able to win because um, familiar names were in the final, Isner and Fed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Augur Aliasime. Thank you, yes. And he's the one that beat Tsitsipas first round or uh, second round of Indian Wells. He did, yeah. Yeah. Took out uh, Tiafo too, who had a good uh, – what was that? Was that the Australian Open that he – Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right, yeah. Broke out a little bit. So. Yeah, so some young players. Canada is pretty crazy because even Raonic did pretty well. He lost really in a really close match to team. So it seemed like it was all Canadians between a little bit of Indian Wells and then Miami, two semifinalists. So Indian tennis, good work. <laughs> They're doing something up there. Yeah. All right. Well, transition a little bit. I know a lot of times we talk a little bit more stats with the current matches, but we want to spend um, some time today talking about head-to-head effects and what that does to win probability. I don't know if you, any of you guys, any of our listeners watching March Madness or got to see some of those fun games, but a big thing that's fun to watch is the win probabilities, especially in-game probabilities where you can see, oh, this team's down three with uh, you know less than a minute like Virginia last night. Like, oh, yeah, they only have like a 30% chance to win. And then they made the three and were able to force overtime. So I think this concept of win probabilities and especially with the head to head against the opponent is a very interesting concept. Um, but Matt, do you want to talk about some of the um, some of the concepts with that? With the head to head? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, long story sh- short, spoiler alert. There's not really a big difference. <laughs> Am I right in saying that? Yeah. There's not a huge impact. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll let you go through. Yeah, there's a, there's an article that, that you found, Ben. Um, uh, apparently a statistician and goes through and puts a couple models together and looks at the impacts of head-to-head. First, The first thing he talks about is that um, – Head-to-head matchups in, ten- in the tennis world, especially, um, yeah, I guess in the tennis world, are just not as common as you might think they would be. Um, I think the first thing that stuck out to me was that, what there's like a there's like a point one percent chance that you're that you have a head-to-head matchup more than three times with a with a specific player. Uh huh. And so from the get-go, you can talk about, oh, well, maybe head-to-head, you know, plays an impact in, in the win probability for these different players. But in reality, it doesn't happen as often as we might imagine it would. And because of that, we don't have a huge sample size for it to have any sort of major effect. So it's hard to draw, it's hard to impact probabilities with such a small sample size exactly and i was reading another article that kind of talked about that that he based his model on not head-to-head but on common opponents so kind of this this transitive property Mm -hmm. thing right well if if Federer beat team 
and uh, Nadal beat Federer, well, then Nadal should be able to beat Team. We know that obviously doesn't always hold up because there is the head-to-head -head effects, there is matchups, there is surfaces, but that's how models kind of have to work, like you're saying, because most players don't have even more than three matches against uh, on the, the same player in a 10-year period. Um, of course, there's huge exceptions to that, right? Uh, Djokovic and Nadal have met 53 times, which is an open-era right. record. Hmm. Uh, of course, Djokovic narrowly kind of taken the lead on that 28-25. But like you're saying, most players don't have 53. They barely even have three. And I think I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, is that really true? I feel like these same guys are always playing each other. But if you think about with the new generation that's always – trying to push through you have older players that leave for one reason or another or they just they're not as good anymore like maybe Ferrer comes to mind where they're losing in earlier and earlier rounds so they're not seeing the, the same top guys you think about injuries right like injuries can put you out I mean even Federer rest of 2016 he wasn't able to to face Nadal um, and, and increase that head-to-head -head. so you think about all these different variables especially like I'm saying it's not the same top 10 or even the same top 100 it's very fluid. It changes, I think, more than we we would think. Um, right. And so right there, I'm like, okay, now I could see maybe where they're coming from, that it is hard to play against the same person more than three times, unless you're one of these top guys that's always making the final and you're always drawn against Sved Nadal or Djokovic uh, Nadal, as, as we've seen a lot. So so that actually was kind of eye-opening to me, I think. Um, I want to talk about as well, yeah, I guess I guess just the, the classic matchup where you have commentators saying, oh, well – it's clearly a head-to-head -head problem. You know, you think of Federer and Nadal. You're like, oh, Federer, especially on clay, Nadal's just going to, you know, use his forehand to kick it up to Fed's backhand, that heavy topspin. Fed's not going to be able to be in the rallies. He's already at a disadvantage. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it's, it's quick to remark that it's true, that I, I don't think that is a, a wrong fact to say. And then you look at the head-to-head, -head, it's 23-15, but – uh, I think Fed's won the last six, including the walkover and Indian Wells. So you take away those recent uh, success he's had, changing his backhand. That's a pretty, you know, dominating head-to-head. -head. Of course, I would say, as a Fed fan, clay matchups skew the head-to-head -head because um, this effect of the topspin is greater. Plus uh, 15 um, out of their 35 matches, 38 matches, excuse me, have been played on clay. So there's clearly that, but I think this um, the stylistic – um, maybe like we're saying, oversimplification is used by commentators a lot. And I think it is kind of fun for the fans to have contrast in styles and to say, oh, well, this style is just better against this style. But then that same style doesn't work against a two-hander like Djokovic. Um, so again, you hear this a lot in the commentators, but what we're saying is maybe it works for the top guys, but for overall, for statistical modeling, it's not that good of a model. It doesn't make that big of a difference, like you're yeah. saying. Yeah. And I mean, I would go back and draw that connection that you were just talking about with, with the NCAA men's basketball tournament. I mean, we, there's a reason that nobody's had a perfect bracket. If, you know, everybody can sit down and say, Oh, well, UVA matches up as a number one seed best, you know, super well against this number 16 seed UMBC. That's never, you know, mm -hmm. that upset has never happened and look what happens, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you get different teams or in tennis, different players who start streaking at different times or in different tournaments. And in reality, every tennis tournament is just a mini March Madness bracket. Yeah. You never know. You never know what happens when they get on the court. That's why they play the game. 
Right. And even though it's best of five sets, it's not like they're playing best out of five matches over five days, in which case would even more heavily favor the best player. And that's why kind of Masters events are fun because a guy like Cole Schreiber can take two quick sets off Djokovic and you're like, whoa, what happened? If Djokovic, you know, had been given that extra set, I guess, to get back into it, you never know what happens. So that is interesting. I I guess what's interesting as well is just not only head-to-head who has the advantage, but also based on ELO, right, and the separation, uh, the differential in point value, you're able to be like, okay, well, you know, 50 uh, difference in points would be whatever. They should win at 80% of the time or, or what have you. But then looking at the head-to-head, for some people, Stan Vavrinka, we'll talk about in a minute, is one where it actually has skewed quite a bit for him. <laughs> like we said, most players, it's eh, there's there's a little bit there if they even have a history, but uh, Vavrinka, for example, on the on the graph uh, from this on the T article showed that uh, against Burdick, Tomas Burdick, Burdick always had so in their last ten matches, his ELO was higher than Stan's. That so was pretty close, um, but Stan's only lost one match since 2010, and he's won ten of those. So hugely skewed. The probability should say majority of the time, even though they're very close. Burdick should be winning, but that's just not been the case. Um, I know a lot of those matches have really been close. Four setters and slams, uh, pretty close, but maybe there's just something there. Um, maybe Zelo didn't fully reflect, or maybe there is a matchup with with Burdick. Um, and Stan, yeah, just just super interesting that that though Elo predicts Burdick should win X percent of the time, Vavrinka is totally flipped that around. And so that's a huge extreme. Um, on the graph, that's like the one big extreme with Sam and uh, Chilich was very similar as well. Um, Stan's won the most recent eight matches, even though Chilich, he's not only won a slam, but it's been pretty consistent in the slams recently. So his rise in ELO did not coordinate with uh, more match wins over Vavrinka. So Vavrinka may be an interesting, interesting case here. That he is. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one place where it, uh, has a, a somewhat legitimate effect. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, I guess the other one too is thinking about, you know, Indian Wells. I'm like, ooh, Stan just won that really tense match over uh, Fuskovics. And like, maybe this is going to be really good against Federer. And now Federer beat him pretty routinely. But again, looking at head to head, right? Even though the ELO would say one thing, um, of course, the ELO doesn't take into account injuries as well um, as it should. And that's something we've talked about. But also just him playing against his compadre. I think there's a mental aspect, right? Fed knows, and he said this before. He's like, I know what shots Stan's going to hit, and he knows what shots I'm going to hit. But that's the thing is, is trying to neutralize that, I guess, even though you know what the other guy knows. It's just that, the mind game right there. But, you know, there, you know, Federer has a 22-3 uh, to three head-to-head over Stan, and all three victories for Stan have come on a clay court. So he's never beaten Federer even though he had a really close Australian Open a couple years ago in the semis, he's never beaten him on a hard court. So I think mentally that's just such a huge advantage. Stan knows I've never beaten Fed on a hard court. And Fed knows, yeah, I can beat him on a hard court. So I don't know if there's that, but that's that, that's that's got to play a factor. Even though maybe the, the probability models don't show that, for especially for those two guys, you know. All right, Fed's got the edge. Clay, totally different story, but... Sure. Hardcore, you got to favor Fed a little bit more than what Elo would say. Yeah. And I think it also comes down to execution, right? You might know what the other person's going to do, but if you can't keep them from doing it or return with a, a more precise or more crisp shot, then 
it doesn't matter if you know or not. Yeah. And that that's only going to hurt your mental game. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> Knowing that's... what they're going to do and then watching them do it to you. And that's very well said. It was funny even watching that Indian Wells match certain things that, that Stan tried to do, whether it was lobs or different things. And after Fed put away that overhead or the volley, you could see Stan getting frustrated. Like, like you're saying, he knew that was coming. He just didn't pull off the lob as good well as he should or, or whatnot. So yeah, tennis is a tricky, tricky game, especially uh, with, with trying to execute that game plan. The margin of error is, is pretty, pretty slim. Yep. It's a game of inches. <laughs> it is. It truly is a game of inches. So yeah, that's that's something we thought was pretty interesting. Hopefully, we can talk more about uh, about these probabilities and and other things that impact um, them because I think it's pretty fascinating. Um, as well as talking about, um, yeah, I don't know if there is is some predictive power in that and with the Grand Slams if there are some better models. But it was interesting to reading about the the different models and there they really are just slight differences, but most of the models did have that common opponent um, theory. So that's something hopefully we can talk about in the future. Um, I think what else I had. Or we can also, like, we're, we're trying, starting to get into the clay court season, so entertaining questions such as, we know Nadal is probably the greatest clay quarter of all time, but who's maybe the next best? I know maybe Djokovic or Federer could have a um, an argument for that or Bjorn Borg. So it would be interesting to look into the stats. So that's ho hopefully something we can come up with as well as, we love talking about the young new players in the sport and hopefully looking at their stats, seeing if they're improving. Um, Tsitsipas, he did play a little bit better in Miami, but it would be interesting to see how he does going into the clay court season because he's a pretty good clay quarter as, as well. Uh, but Matt, any last, uh, any last words? I think that's everything. All right. Lots of good material coming up and stay with us. Stay tuned. That's right. And we'll see you guys in the court. <laughs>